Here in Ecclesiastes 12, looking at verses 9 to 12, the character of this book, the character of Ecclesiastes. We have learned from Ecclesiastes, we live in a sin-cursed world, don't we? Um, And living in this sin-cursed world has a lot of frustrations in it. The key word of this book is vanity. Not intending to have a negative sense in that the entire book is vanity. But it's describing our experience in this sin-cursed world. It's frustrating. It's impossible to put everything together from our perspective. It's like a snowstorm, isn't it? But living in a sin-cursed world, that can be frustrating we can seemingly have everything go good and then everything falls apart. We can make plans. And you can say, this is a perfect plan for life. And then what happens? Unexpected things happen that demolish your plan and great disappointments. It's frustrating. It's hard. You can't figure this out. How can we make sense of it? Well, let's go get some answers. If you need answers to something in this day and age, where do you go? Well, before the internet, I'd go to my world book encyclopedia, or I'd talk to my mom or dad or something like that. Now, where do we go often for answers? We Google it. We'll punch it in, or we'll ask Siri. i got to say that quietly because some of you have an Apple phone. If I said that out loud... You're going to get a response from your phone right now, or I might from mine. You might go to YouTube, punch it in. What are some answers to my questioning quandary? Social media influencers who share their latest tidbit. Look at this new thing that I found. This would be a great help. Bookshelves. Uh, I've been in Barnes & Noble two times the last month or so, and I've always been amazed at their self-help section. It's huge. Hundreds of books on getting help. Well, how do you know which one to pick? Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. This one has a good cover, and so I'm going to judge a book by its cover. That's a great way to make a decision on finding answers to life, isn't it? It has good print. I like the colors. It looks nice. Maybe you'll ask your brother or your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your mom or your dad, whomever it might be. And then you come across this book of Ecclesiastes. From a 21st century point of view, this is a challenging book, isn't it? It's a conundrum. It's hard to make our way through. And so you could ask, Why should you listen to what Solomon has to say in this book? Maybe you should get a second opinion. You've listened to what he said. Maybe you should go somewhere else. Here in verses 9 to 12, Solomon states his authority for writing this book. And he says from this, why you must listen to what he has to say and why you must obey it. He says that what he wrote about the search for meaning and purpose in life and everything that goes along with that, it ultimately comes from one shepherd and guess who that's referring to? God. Everything that Solomon says in this book about the meaning and purpose in life 
Solomon says, comes from God. Way better than Google, YouTube, any social media influencer, any self-help book. Infinitely better. This passage tells us why you must listen and heed Ecclesiastes. The main point of this point of this passage, then at the top of your book, atop your handout, then, is that you must heed scripture and nothing else. When it comes to finding the meaning and purpose in life, how you should live, and why you should live that way, you must heed scripture and nothing else. Well, we have a tendency to say, well, why? Prove it to me. That's what Solomon does here in verses 9 to 12. Why you should heed scripture and nothing else. First, number one, verse 9, verses 9 and 10. We learn about the character of the author. The character of the author. Verse 9, moreover, because the preacher was wise. This describes, number one, his uh, qualification, his qualification for writing. His qualification for writing. If you've ever had to apply for a job or you've been in a position where you've had to hire people, you you are asked or you ask, what makes you qualified to do this job? And often in, uh, those who are trying to apply for the job, they will submit a resume or they'll fill out an application form. Here are my references. Here's my experiences. Here's my education. Here's all the things that show I'm the guy for this job. I'm qualified for that. Solomon, what qualifies you to teach us how we should live? What qualifies you to tell us what meaning and purpose in life in this frustrating world is like? Solomon says he was a wise teacher. What does wisdom require? At least three things. Wisdom requires, biblical wisdom requires at least, number one, being born again. You have to have new life from God. Otherwise, you're dead Spiritually dead, your your eyes are blinded, everything's upside down and inside out. You need to be born again so that you love the Lord, you love his word. A second requirement, at very minimum, is that you know God's truth. You are first born again, and second, you know God's truth. Solomon knew the truth that God gave, the Mosaic law. He knew it backwards and forwards. A third thing that's required in addition to being born again and knowing God's truth is a love for that truth and an obedience to it. You could just write love and obedience. Love for God's truth and an obedience to it. It's not half-hearted. It's not partial obedience. It's a full love and obedience to God and his truth. There's an application that every believer here needs to make to themselves. Christian, you are a teacher to those in your life. The roles that you have and the responsibilities that you have. Those in your family, those that you come in contact with, 
you work with, you are to be a teacher to them. Furthermore, how are unbelievers supposed to hear the good news? They need to, what? Hear it. And they need to hear it from someone who will tell them about that. You have unbelievers in your life. That you're the only one in this congregation who has that contact with them. I can't talk to them. God has providentially put you in their lives. You are their teacher. You need to be wise. Know the word. Love and obey it. But also, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters here. To teach them the scriptures. Doesn't mean you stand up like this in a formal way, but it can be right across the table. It can be on the phone. It can be by a text message. By your giving scriptural encouragement and scriptural life. A second aspect of the character of the author, number two, is his purpose in writing. His purpose in writing. The second part of verse 9, he taught the people knowledge. This was his purpose in writing. He wasn't just, let me share my opinion with you. Or, I came across this possibility. Or, here's a hypothesis and how it might work. No, he taught truth. He taught knowledge. What is knowledge? What is knowledge? Knowledge involves having a solid grasp of truth and facts. Knowledge is a solid grasp of truth and facts. Have you ever talked to someone and you're sharing how this is what your job is or this is a real heavy interest in your life? And they say, oh yeah, I know about that. And then they start to spout off. And as they start to talk, you realize they don't have knowledge. They don't know what they're talking about, do they? That's why often when I have an an illustration about uh, computers or engineering or construction or farming, I will almost always run it by the individuals in our church to make sure, do I have this right? Or I'll punch it into Google to see if that is correct or not. Knowledge involves a solid grasp of truth and facts, and Solomon had that. But his aim is to teach that, to teach the people knowledge. So what does teaching involve? Teaching involves helping others to gain that knowledge. Helping others to gain that knowledge so that then they have a solid grasp of that truth and facts. How many times does Paul say in his letters, I don't want you to be ignorant. And ignorant means you're without knowledge. You lack the solid grasp of truth and facts. And I don't want you to be ignorant, so I'm going to teach you. That's what Solomon's purpose in writing this book is, to teach them knowledge. He had a godly aim and purpose. His aim was not to write something that sounded good. His aim was not to write some really good literature, but rather it was the opposite, to teach you knowledge. 
A third aspect of the character of the author is, number three, his process in writing, how he went about it. His process in writing. This is the last part of verse 9 in the beginning of verse 10. He pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. Let's consider what Solomon says here. As saying, this is the process and how I went about it. And because of that, it, that my, my care in doing so should cause you to listen to what I have to say here. He says, first of all, I pondered it. That means he gave careful thought. He gave careful thought, carefully weighing these things. What exactly I have to say. He didn't speak. He didn't speak before he thought. He thought first, and then he spoke. He gave careful thought to it. The second thing is he sought out. He gave careful effort. Careful effort. This is in contrast to being lazy and not working hard. He put study into it. It is true that the quality of your preparation will be seen in the quality of your teaching. Have you ever heard somebody speak on a subject that they had not prepared for it or given a presentation or even worse, given a sermon that you can tell that was a Saturday night special. Now, what does that mean? Well, they started working on that the night before, and you can tell, yeah, pastor had a busy week. That was a lame sermon. I hope that never happens. Solomon wasn't that case. He gave careful effort. And then he said he set in order many proverbs. He gave careful thought, careful effort here, Careful construction of the book. Careful construction. So did Solomon, did he know any Proverbs? Oh, wow. Thousands of them. He wrote a whole book of Proverbs. He didn't put down here all the Proverbs he knew and just kind of... Garb, uh, what's that called? A photo dump. Okay, where you, sh- where you share every photo uh, on, your, on your feed. and You're just going to... A photo dump of my whole time. But no... He carefully sifted through these things from the scriptural point of view, the spirit directing him, which I will get to in a little bit. And he wrote down those Proverbs to help us understand what life in a sin-cursed world is like and how to have purpose in life. Remember, a proverb is just a short, compact statement of biblical wisdom. And he selected just the right ones to live a godly life. Then he says, at the beginning of verse 10, he sought to find acceptable words. He gave careful thought, careful effort, careful construction. Here, careful crafting. Careful crafting. Sought to find acceptable words. What is the difference between a master craftsman and your average hack? Well... I'm going to classify myself as your average hack when it comes to building things. I am not a craftsman. What if I was responsible for uh, crafting the uh, vanities in the bathrooms? I'll tell you this. They wouldn't look like what they do now. 
it would be square. It would be kind of thrown together. And I did my best. But you'll be able to tell, pastor is not a master craftsman. The difference between a master craftsman and a hack is you can tell it by how they put things together. Solomon put this book together. The wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus. And he put it perfectly suited for Israelite thinking and understanding. And this is important to grasp. We come to Ecclesiastes and we say, this is a hard thing to get. An Israelite living in Solomon's time, this is a work of art that Solomon provided for the Hebrews living at that time. So our challenge is not one of this is false. Our challenge is one of culture and distance of time. And so we have to bend and try to understand what he's getting at from a Hebrew perspective. A last character, uh, last aspect of the character of, of Solomon, number four, is the quality of his writing. The quality of his writing. The last part of verse 10. What was written was upright words of truth. Upright means perfectly aligned. It's not askew and off or just a little bit. It is perfectly aligned with God's holiness. It is perfectly aligned. That's what's meant by upright. It is perfectly aligned with God's holiness. This happened because the Spirit protected him from error and the Spirit guided him so that the words that he wrote were exactly the words that God wanted written. Not only are these words upright, but they are true. They are words of truth. That means statements corresponding to who God is and what he has said. That is what truth is. Truth is whatever corresponds to who God is or what God has said. Sometimes you'll hear people say, and you will hear even Christians say, truth is whatever corresponds to reality. And I get what they're saying, but that's an inadequate definition of truth because isn't truth one of God's attributes? It is. God is truth. That means he has always been true and always told the truth before there was anything other than himself existing. Reality. Truth is whatever corresponds to who God is and what God has said. And Solomon here says that this book of Ecclesiastes, it's true. It aligns with God's character and what God has said. In elementary school, or maybe it was junior high, we had to do a writing exercise. Maybe it was high school. A writing exercise to somehow teach us how to write. And the teacher said, I want you to start writing and not stop writing. Just continue writing and writing and writing. It was called stream of consciousness writing. And then we had to read those things out loud. And what a meandering conglomeration of nonsense that we produced. That's not what Solomon did here. 
He didn't do shoddy work. And because of who this author is, you must heed this book. A second reason Solomon gives us why you must heed it is because the character of the book. Number two, the character of the book, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. The first characteristic he tells us about is what it does. They're like goads and like well-driven nails. What is a goad? During their time, reading from a Bible dictionary here, uh, during their time they had sharp cattle goads. Sometimes they would have a metal point fitted to the end of a wooden shaft. Sometimes they would put nails in those. They'd stick out. And they would use those to goad the cattle, get them to go in a direction that the farmer wanted them to go, the herdsman. And that's what the scripture does. Ecclesiastes, like the rest of scripture, it stimulates godly living. It's a goad poking you, prodding you, pushing you into the direction that you should be going. A poking motivation toward right living. And Christian, you need that. You can't lean on your own understanding. You need to trust the Lord. And that means you need to get poked a lot. And the scripture provides that. He also says it's like well-driven nails. This idea is that it gives you a secure basis for living. It's tight. It's firmly set. It's deep. There's strength through it. It holds it all together. And that's what Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes pokes you in the direction you should go, and it gives you a solid foundation and frame for a living. That's what good teaching does. The aim is not to sound philosophical or to impress people. The aim isn't to entertain. The aim isn't to amuse. The aim isn't to make you feel good. The aim isn't to tell stories, and that is this is very popular in sadly churches today, just to tell stories that you can interpret how you want and to make you feel good. No, the aim is to give sound teaching that prods you in the way you should go and gives you a solid basis for Christ-like living. And that's what Scripture and Scripture alone does. The words of the wise and the words of scholars talking about biblical writers Christians want to learn this so that they can live right, so that they are going in the right direction. Christian, do you want to go in the right direction? I think we're all going to nod our head, aren't we? Do you want to have things nailed down? I think we're going to say, yeah. As you walk through a dark world, don't you want a light to show you the way you should go? And we're all going to nod our head, yeah. Yeah. You got to turn on the flashlight, though. You got to look in the Word. It must lead you, and you have to go that way. Believers want to be poked, want to be prodded, and they want direction. And those are some good, good questions to ask yourself. When you come to our teaching times here, 
When you read your Bible in your home, Lord, am I wanting to be goaded right now into right action and right living? Do I really want to have a more firm foundation for life? Why am I doing this right now? Lord, help me. Help me to learn and to be chastised and disciplined and pointed in the right direction. A second characteristic of this book is where it came from. Second part of verse 11. It is given by one shepherd. The Bible word here is inspiration. Inspiration. Where the Holy Spirit guided those Bible authors and protected them. Guided them so that what they wrote, the words that they wrote, was exactly the words that God wanted written. Protecting them from making any mistakes so that what the biblical author wrote is what God wrote. And it gave his message. When you think of God as a shepherd, what passage do you think of? What's the first one that usually pops into mind? Probably Psalm 23. So hold your place here. Let's back up and let's go to Psalm 23. How, how is Ecclesiastes the work of our good shepherd? Well, let's listen. What does the good shepherd do for his sheep? What does the Lord, as the shepherd of his people, what does he do for his sheep? Number one, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He provides for your every need. And guess what he has provided in the book of Ecclesiastes? He has provided you what you need. So that as you live in this sin-cursed world, you have a right purpose, aim, and direction. Verses 2 and 3. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads his sheep. In the book of Ecclesiastes, God through Solomon leads you in the way that you should go. Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God protects his sheep. And in Ecclesiastes, he protects you from wrong living. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. He cares for his sheep. And in Ecclesiastes, the Lord cares for you. In verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He is always with his sheep. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we learn that. Go back to chapter 12 now. The Holy Spirit moved Solomon so that as what he wrote was what the good shepherd wrote. Solomon sought what's the meaning and purpose of life. And through that, writing about that, the Spirit teaches us. The results of Solomon's research, he correlated that with Scripture. This is what I found. Let's weigh that with Scripture. He puts everything together into a book using different forms of literature, poems. Speech, questions, 
to get the point across. And Solomon at the end gives instruction and warning and encouragement. Christian, you need to learn what God says in the book of Ecclesiastes because of number one, who the author is, and number two, because of the character of the book itself. And when you do that, we must, number three, be aware of the character of the competition. And I put that in quotes for you. The character of, as it were, the competition. Verse 12. The beginning of verse 12 in the New King James Version <clears throat> needs a little tweaking. The word admonished, we need to tweak that to beware. The Hebrew word best in this context is that idea of beware. And then we have a preposition, by. We need to tweak that so that it's the idea of in addition to. And again, the context helps us with that. So instead of further, my son, be admonished by these, the way to tweak this is, my son, beware of anything in addition to these. He has been writing about himself as the biblical author. He's been writing about the scripture that he wrote and now he gives a warning. Be warned of anything in addition to these, these scriptures. And then he talks about the writing of many books. There's no end. And he's not just talking about lots of books. He's talking about competing sources for the meaning of life. And studying that, if you, if you devote yourself to studying all those self-help books, all those YouTube influencers, all those things, it will not give help. It will give you frustration. Don't you feel that way? When you're flipping through your social media feed and after four hours of doing that, you better not do that for four hours. But after four hours of doing that, don't you feel, ah, oh, I have peace in my soul. I have satisfaction and rest. No, you're wiped out. You're tired. You're exhausted. That didn't do anything for me but it feeds the flesh and you keep going through it. And that's Solomon's point here. Let's walk through this then. The sense that Solomon is saying is, my son, be on guard against any alleged source of truth that makes itself equal or superior to the scriptures. So the beginning of verse 12, he says the competition is dangerous. It is dangerous because he says, beware of that. And it's amazing to think that Solomon, thousands of years ago, said this before there were newspapers, before there was email, before there was YouTube, before there was social media, before there was texting, before there was all this stuff. He said that about then. That's amazing. And the amount of such... It only makes the situation worse now, doesn't it? You might say, well, there are some helpful tips of living out there. Well, I would say, do something. Look back at the clock on our back wall there. Nobody's obeying me right now. Because you all know there's no clock back there, right? If you have... 
a watch or a clock at home and the battery runs dry, or in my case, a solar watch that one of my sons-in-law got me a few years ago, it, it needs charging if it does, your watch will stop if it's like an analog watch like this. Now, will that broken clock or that broken watch, will it ever tell the right time? Twice a day, it's going to tell the right time, isn't it? When it comes, oh, it tells the right time. And so because it tells the right time twice a day, is that what you're going to guide your life by? Well, it's given me two good points. Out of the hundreds of things that are, it's given me two good points. And so I'm going to direct my life by that. And you'd say, that's foolish. Do you see the point? Yeah, there might be some little good bits of pieces that you could eat out of the garbage can, but is that going to be your regular diet? How foolish that is. Some of these things are just downright anti-God. It might smell good. It might look good. It might seem good. But they're not. Remember Eve from Genesis 3? In our daily devotional a few weeks ago, I wrote this about Satan's temptation. Satan tempted Eve to eat what God prohibited. Satan did so by leading her to doubt God's purpose, goodness, and the truthfulness of God's command, and to get her to draw her own conclusions. Adam and Eve's disobedience radically changed how they viewed themselves and how they used creation. Beware of finding purpose and meaning of life anywhere outside the scriptures. Once you go down that road, it skews everything. It might seem good and feel good and look good, but it will send you down the road to hell. It will. Let's listen to what Solomon said along this line earlier in the book. Let's go to chapter 3 and verse 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. Why does God's word, why is God's word the only thing that will tell us about God and how we should live? Well, he says here in 3.11, that God has made everything good or beautiful in its time. Also, he's made, he put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Why do we need to listen to God? Well, are you God? Do you know the beginning from the end? Does anyone else in creation know the beginning and the end and everything in between? No. Who's the only one who does? God. Go to chapter Uh, Same chapter, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. He is all. He knows all. He's got it all. Listen to him. And then chapter 7 and verse 14. Chapter 7 and verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. We need to listen to Scripture because the competition 
is dangerous. Only God perfectly knows everything. A second thing, second reason why we shouldn't listen to the competition from verse chapter 12, verse 12, of making books there is no end and much study. And what's meant by that is much study of those books is wearisome to the flesh. Now, this is not a verse against books. It is not a verse against education. So kids, those of you who are still in school, please don't say to your mom, dad, your teacher tomorrow, the Bible says that the studying of such, it just doesn't do anything. See, mom, there we go. I'm not going, I'm staying in bed today. I guarantee you, you will have a hard life tomorrow. It will be Havel, vanity, frustrating, an enigma. They will make your life miserable because they're on God's side and you are not, if you use this verse to that end. What's he talking about? He's talking about people at that time who wrote books and books and books from all kinds of angles, trying to say they have found the meaning of life. Remember that Barnes and Noble section of self-help books? We have found the meaning of life. And you say, well, I don't see that in anything of that, what you just said. And they will say, well, you need to find the meaning of life then for yourself. What seems right to you? And so then you go on the internet or you go to some other person and you're weighing it all by yourself. And that is foolish and wrong. That was true in Solomon's day. It is true now. So why does that create wearisome to the flesh. Why does that create exhaustion and doesn't help? Where are those sources of help coming from? Those sources of help are coming from human beings who live in a sin-cursed world, who struggle, who don't know the answers, And they're just spouting what they think. And that's not going to give you the answer. That's just going to cause more frustration. They're cursed by sin, and so they are frustrated with sin. And when you look to them, you'll only be ultimately frustrated. It won't give you rest. It will only make you weary. Solomon is saying this. Scripture is not wearisome to your flesh. With Scripture, who do we hear? We hear the Lord. The Good Shepherd. And when we hear the Good Shepherd... And we listen to him and we heed him. He gives rest to our soul. And Solomon in this book, guided by the Lord, giving us God's word, the one good shepherd, he gives us, shows us the meaning, purpose of significance in this life is fearing God, enjoying his blessings and resting in him, living rightly. And that settles the waves in our hearts. That calms the tumult of our souls. That drives away the fog. 
It's a light in the darkness. Now, there is an infinite difference between authors of books who love the Lord and submit to the Lord, and they write books to help you know how to live and think. There's an infinite difference between them and other authors who don't have that perspective, who don't have that idea. We must be convinced the standard is Scripture. And so always rest in it and always evaluate by it. Always rest in the Scriptures and always evaluate by the Scriptures. Verses 9 to 12, Christian, this should be a great encouragement. It answers the question, how can you trust this book? And what makes this book different from all the other self-help influencers and books that are out there? What makes it different is the author and the book and the fact that it's true and that warns us against all other competitors. So, Christian, what do you think about the Bible? How do you value it? What's your emotions about it? The answer to these questions, they're going to be seen, yes, what you think about it, and yes, how you feel about it, but particularly, it's going to be seen in what you do. If you read it, do you live it? When you go through the hard time and you read the scripture, and he says, trust me, I am with you, keep doing right, will you obey him? That's, that's where it's then seen in your attitude and your actions. It will be seen in your estimate of the, what the world teaches. The sources that you go to on how to live. A great gift the Lord has given us here. We need to thank him for it. Let's pray.